Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second installment of our first interview series on the podcast called Strategies for Letting Go of the Food and Weight Obsession. Today's topic is Why Willpower Isn't Enough for Some of Us with Dr. Marty Lerner. I'm so excited to do this interview because this man is very special to me. He pretty much came into my life and changed the game actually 14 years ago today. Um, and today is the day I walked into your treatment center and uh, my life just changed for the better. And I am just, I almost got choked up thinking about interviewing you earlier today. So, <laughs> um, but let me give you his quick bio before we jump in because he has a man full of so much knowledge, you're going to want to know a ton. So, Dr. Lerner is a PhD, he has a PhD and is a CEO of Milestones Eating Disorder Program in Hollywood, Florida. He's a graduate of NEV, is that NIT? North Southeast, NEV Southeastern? Nova Southeastern. Nova Southeastern University, a licensed and board certified clinical psychologist who has specialized in the treatment of eating disorders since 1980. He has appeared on numerous national television radio programs, including the NPR Report, 2020, Discovery Health, and ABC's Nightline, as well as authored several publications related to eating disorders in professional literature, national magazines, and newspapers, including USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Miami Herald, Orlando, and Hollywood Sun Sentinel. His most recent publication is A Guide to Eating Disorder Recovery and is available via iBook and the Milestones website. So... Marty is someone that when I was in treatment, I could listen to uh, for hours. So um, tune your ears in and you're going to learn some of kind of the good science and psychology stuff that, you know, the world is obviously not going to teach us about things like food addiction. And I'm so glad he's done so many of these shows because every time he does them, the world knows a little bit more about food addiction. So I guess welcome, Marty. Thank uh, you very much. And thank uh, you for a very flattering introduction. <laughs> You're, you're very welcome. So why don't we, because some of my listeners probably, you know, uh -huh. don't know that food addiction is possible right. so or addressing it as an addiction. Do you want to jump in with that and kind of explain making the case for food addiction? Yes, sure. I'd be happy to. Well, first off, I, I think semantics or our language doesn't do justice to try and describe what we're going to be talking about. So there's a lot of confusion and, and the most obvious question, most, I guess, non-food addicts or non-compulsive eaters or non-binge uh, eaters and alike would ask is, you know, how can food be addicting? And, um, you know, again, going back to the, the uh, uh, paradox with language, it's sort of where drug addiction might have been years and years and years ago, um, because not all drugs are addictive. Well, not all foods are addictive. So for lack of better description, the words or phrase food addiction came into being because it tends to describe um, a relationship with food and dieting and weight and that whole umbrella under which all these uh, different disorders uh, kind of live. So uh, I would just you know, suggest to whoever's listening that not to get hung up on the term uh, food addiction, but look at this as one of a number of addictions uh, or uh, issues we have with either substances or compulsive behaviors that despite our best intentions and willpower don't seem uh, to surrender uh, to uh, our intentions or our efforts. So another frame of reference with all that is uh, food addiction is about being powerless over certain foods and our relationship uh, with uh, uh, our eating patterns, just like uh, alcoholism is about uh, not having control or in that vernacular, uh, being powerless over alcohol when we uh, ingest it and drugs and uh, compulsive gambling and just all of those different buckets uh, of different ways we self-medicate ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I put it in my notes too, but I often uh, talk about uh, the first time I ever talked to you and you probably don't remember because you deal with so many people, but uh -huh. I just remember, you know, I just wanted to fix my weight or fix the food and I'll never sure. forget you saying, so what have your consequences been with alcohol? And it was just this yeah. mind blown, whoa, right. 
you know, um, and that's kind of what you were just saying. So is that kind of the, and people don't even realize that, I guess you would say it's cross addictions where they could have multiple things. Well, the confusion, the confusion really is that there's the nature of the behavior or the substance, be it alcohol or be it, you know, fentanyl or, or be it um, a behavior like gambling and, and we can go down the whole list again and sugar and flour um, and so on processed foods and along those lines, the nature of the substance, but there's really the nature of the person. Yeah. And, you know, through the years, what I've observed is that most, not all, there are certainly exceptions to these rules, but for the most part, uh, the nature of the person, whether they present themselves at a particular time in their life as having an addiction or a compulsion with eating and certain foods or with a substance like alcohol or sedatives or what have you, that um, they, uh, they, they tend to have this, this addictive uh, component to their biology and their psyche and, and their, and their uh, purpose for living, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, um, I think that that leads me to conclude that when I'm talking with someone, and I don't remember the specific conversation, but with someone like yourself, I'm always on the lookout for getting a sense or an intuit uh, about having other forms or substances with which someone, you know, is not able to control with willpower. Mm-hmm. Yep. And in your in your case, it was a double martini or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. Yeah, it's, uh, and I think, and you probably know this, a lot of treatment centers don't treat. I mean, a lot of treatment centers just treat one. They don't address the-, the Oh, the- yeah, yeah. What ends up happening is is because of lots of different reasons, we label someone uh, to describe their illness. So um, maybe we label someone as having um, uh, uh, cancer, or we label someone as being alcoholic, or we label someone as drug addicted, or we label someone, you know, whatever. And what ends up happening is if you use the medical analogy, you know, cancer, well, what, you know, is there one cancer? Maybe it originated in a lung, but but by the time someone is being treated, they may be be, treat, be treated for you know um, uh, a tumor in their in their bone or kidney cancer or wherever it migrates. Yeah. So um, if I make the same analogy, someone may start out as a compulsive overeater, the symptom of which may be obesity, or they may start out dieting, and the symptom of that. Uh, for some people can end up being, you know, an anorectic kind of illness. Uh, what ends up happening is uh, they tend to, I like to say, switch chairs on the Titanic thinking they're not going to drown. So um, uh, with chemotherapy and the way we treat cancer, what ends up happening is we treat the lung cancer and we may have reduced the tumor, but in many instances, it's migrated to another part of the body. And then we have to go and now treat the other part. Well, that person doesn't have control over that. You know, there's a lot of processes that happen. Well, likewise, I would make the argument that someone may start out with, you know, food addiction or compulsive overeating or even alcoholism or whatever. And they either put down or uh, migrate to another form of self-medication. Yeah. So uh, for the food addict, it might be, well, they have gastric bypass and now they can't physiologically self-medicate uh, by overeating. So they find that what was social drinking now manifests itself in compulsive drinking mm-hmm. and, um, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So back to the analogy, um, most people and institutions that treat these disorders are very uh, narrow focused or have been historically narrow focused. So they're treating a symptom, which might be the substance of use or the behavior of abuse, but not looking at the disease and the nature of the person being an addict or addictive personality or having that genetic physical, emotional, and spiritual malady, right. if they're not treating all three of those legs of those stools, then they're only treating a symptom. And I think that that's what you find both in medicine and psychiatry and in treating addictions. Wow. 
And I think that's what's so key about, I mean, because I think I was set to go somewhere else and someone recommended your facility and mainly because you had 12 step. And, um, you know, I think that is such a important piece of it where it's like you need that support program for when you walk out of the place. And yeah. I know not everybody chooses it. I know, you know, cause you hear people say, oh, treatment doesn't really work. And it's like, well, treatment isn't a fix. You know, we need to learn to leave, live the new lifestyle. But I have heard of people, a lot of people going to ones that don't use 12 step. And uh, I'm grateful that you, ha you had us go to those meetings. Yeah, it's, it, it's not an original yeah. thought. My, you know, look, to be candid, what I do and what many people do who have letters after their name and, and, and their livelihood or their profession is, you know, helping professions. Many uh, in, in this field um, have a blend of personal experiences as well as professional experiences. And um, to tease out which or which is a little bit tricky, but it is a blend of what's evidence-based and what's experientially based. Yep. And I think that that is a, is a more potent formula than just an academic or intellectual uh, understanding of something, because there are some components uh, to recovery or um, a recovery lifestyle that have nothing to do with intellect, yes. um, that, that have a lot to do with, with experience, but also have to do with, you know, finding your own path uh, to spirituality and a connection uh, with something uh, more powerful than your own ego or self. And um, so that may take the form of, a, of, of something familiar to people in terms of their religious upbringing, or it may be a redefinition or a retooling of that and their own flavor of spirituality. But where all these paths tend to meet, you know, in the end, is a connection with uh, usually with you know with a god of your understanding, and then the rest of that you know uh, uh, can be left for people to decide for themselves you know uh, the different uh, uh, details of all of that. Mm -hmm. But from a from a psychiatric or psychological perspective, uh, you know my 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 view of that is stepping out of the the self or the ego and looking for the the um the spirit within yeah. and whether you know whether someone labels that um the christ within or they label that you know the Allah within or yeah. the tree within or whatever within the more important thing is that they disassociate it from the ego of of willpower or self yep so my favorite expression along those lines is your ego is not your amigo Oh, I remember that one. <laughs> you had so many good one-liners. Um, so that brings me to your other favorite piece, or the, the other thing I remember so much is is Smurf, S-M-E-R-F, right. um, which is kind of a, a what is it? What's what is it? Not a metaphor. What's, what's well, and, a, and an acronym. That's I, I, it. Yeah, and you know, there are three languages that I tend to speak in. There are languages that you tend to speak and, you know, there's a language that may be, you know, your religious language. Mm -hmm. There may be a language that is your native tongue, English. There may be a, an, a language in your profession. So in mine, I, I speak, you know, fluent uh, insurance language. Uh, I speak uh, fluent uh, uh, psychiatric, psychological language, but I also um, speak fluent recovery. Yep. <laughs> so, um, you know, they're they're just different languages. Yeah. Sure. So so in recovery language and in recovery experience in twelve step programs or uh, programs that are akin to that, um, there are an acronyms a way of remembering things, just like we did in school. So um, I remember uh, uh, Roy G. Biv or something to yeah. remember the primary colors. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, uh, the expression I I had heard in attending, um, and yes, I. I have my own addictions that I've been recovering from for some years. So sitting in the chairs uh, in these rooms and, and being educated, what was given to me was, was something called HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And those are uh, elements that you want to avoid 
uh, or address uh, that lead people to being more prone to picking up a drink or, or an addictive substance or compulsive behavior. So I, I butchered that. I, I plead guilty with an explanation and made my own an acronym that worked for me and, and I passed that along to people if they uh, choose to try it. It's called SMURF. And SMURF is S-M-E-R-F, spirituality, meditation, exercise, rest, which is balancing work and play, and a food plan, which for someone like myself or a compulsive eater or food addict might be, you know, whole food or um, uh, a structured plan where you're avoiding uh, processed uh, uh, junk foods, sugar, flour, that sort of thing. So I won't bore you with all the details of the food plan, but it is not a diet. It's just a healthy lifestyle in terms of eating. Yes, I actually just interviewed Teresa yesterday for this, or oh, two days ago for the series. So um, she gave a sure. good you know, background on what the food plans are. And I love that, that it, it is not a diet. For me, it's like my freedom. It's like my roadmap right. for living that keeps me out of the food and in my life. Yeah, you know? yeah absolutely. And I, I think so many people think that if they just control the food with a the diet, then, you know, that'll work. And it's like, nope, it won't, uh, at least for some of us. Um, and talking about those, I also remember when I was in treatment, you know, I was running, I was a marathoner. And I remember right. Nikki, Nikki being like, and we're not going to run. And I was like, <laughs> what? I don't know how I'm going to function. But, right. you know, I had to have my workout buddy and, and I really began to understand what having an exercise addiction means and that that was really my purging. Um, so, and I think some people don't really like people think, Oh, I worked out for four hours today. I'm doing great. And I'm like, um, that that's a bit much. So I don't know if you want to maybe mention something about, um, exercise. Well, you know, we're also talking about a phenomenon called denial. Um, (laughs) so sometimes you don't know you're addicted to something until you you're in a position where you have to stop. Yes. Um, but the other thing is you can take anything really um, uh, that's healthy and push it to the point where it becomes unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can work and be an achiever and that could be, you know, followed with lots of acc- accolades and, and, and achievements. But if you push that, you become, you know, addicted to work or workaholic and it's at the expense or consequences uh, to the quality of your life. Exercise is a good example because with exercise, just like with dieting, um, you know, to a point that really what dieting is, is trying to improve, you know, your health and cosmetically uh, to be more appealing. So, all right. But if you push that further, it becomes a disease and an illness that's lethal. And uh, exercise in the service of health moderating blood sugar, uh, uh, you know, moderating stress, it's all good. Push it to, you know, it, you know, a, a high degree, it becomes both addictive. And the irony is that your set point of metabolism reaches a point where it's on survival mode, just like when you're, when you're restricting. So eventually you develop tolerance, meaning that you have to do more to achieve the same effect. So you have to eat less and less and less while you paint yourself in a corner to be able to not gain weight or to lose more weight. And you have to exercise more and more and more to stave off depression or the, or the um, malaise of feeling like you're not doing enough. And then uh, also you're, you're burning all these calories, but you're not burning as much as you think because what ends up happening is your body's conserving energy. So you could be running two hours and it would have been more effective to just run a half hour. Wow. You should get up and say that at the beginning of every marathon. <laughs> well, look, you know, <laughs> you can't say that everybody that drinks is alcohol. No, it's so true. You can't, you can't say that every kid that has a candy bar, you know, has to go to treatment. Yeah. And so you can't say that everybody that runs a marathon, you know, has, has an exercise addiction. Mm-hmm. So not, not all... Not all overweight people are food addicts or compulsive yep. overeaters. Yep. Not all marathon runners are exercise addicts. However, if you were fishing, that would be the, the fishing hole I would go to to catch one. Exactly what I was thinking. It's, it's not, I mean, I'm always amazed at people that 
aren't as addictive as it with it as I was. Yeah. But yeah, let's you go, catch let's go back to the nature of the nature of the person. Yes. Yep. Yep. So you know, a lot of people trade in their purging through making themselves sick or laxative abuse by purging through exercise because it's more socially acceptable. Yep. And and not as ego dystonic or or you know oppositional to your value system or whatever yeah so um you know it's all the same beast yeah it is and that's why i love that you say that because it helps me look at every behavior and everything is okay am i turn is this going to that level of i'm doing it a little too much and you know yeah i don't want to turn off dog lovers but i know that you know where i live in south florida it's a bit much for me to see a baby carriage and I'm going to go say, oh, what a cute baby. And I look oh. in, it's a little schnauzer in a baby carriage. I mean, I think, you know, there's love addiction. There's, there's, oh, yeah. know, <laughs> there's anyway. Um, so, you know, where you draw the line, you know, <laughs> uh, could be subjective, but in my book, it's about the consequences, you know, yeah. so. And the dog's got a, an outfit on and a binky in its mouth. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, I love my dog, but I'm not taking it out for a walk in a baby carriage. I got it. I got it. Um, So that makes me want to dive more into that. um, The ex the the uh, neuroscience, the hypothalamus and the uh, I know you could go for hours on this. But again, it's another area I think a lot of people don't understand the serotonin, the dopamine. And yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, I can try and simplify this. But basically, it used to be thought a matter of fact, in the original literature that was written by the original 100 men that started uh, notice I said men now uh, in AA, it's now 50% or more women. But Mm -hmm. that said, um, this was in 1939, and, and then they had a Dr. Silkworth who worked with alcoholics, who was not an alcoholic, but described it as a as a disease, which we all have a great debt for, mm-hmm. but also described it as an allergy. And, and we're now in 2022, and it was more recently, relatively speaking, that the technology caught up uh, with, with what was written or experienced anecdotally. Uh, uh, recorded. And that is that we have PET spans, uh, proton emission tomography, um, and we have functional MRIs uh, that uh, when you when you inject dye, you can you can map parts of the brain that have concentrations of certain neurochemicals. And there is a chemical, you won't remember this, but um, it's called dopamine. And that's the feel good uh, neurotransmitter. When someone ingests a lot of cocaine and they're running around, you know, trying to sell matchbook covers and ice to um, uh, Eskimos, uh, what's really happening is they have a flood of dopamine uh, in between their neurotransmitters or in these synapses and uh, they're high. Mm-hmm. Okay. In a much, much, much more subtle, but still um, a very uh, potent way. Uh, there are certain people that either acquire or born with a propensity when they eat certain foods to have a very similar uh, uh, reaction to that. And what ends up happening in part is they secrete um, um, more dopamine than the average person. And the reward system of the brain, chemically speaking, learns this just like there's muscle memory when you ride a bike. You can lay off the bike for 20 years get on it and in about 10 minutes you're remembering how to ride a bike well you can put down a substance that you've been addicted to and if you pick it up you'll have like muscle memory and wow. that will that will happen again because that's how you're hardwired that said what happens with certain trigger foods or amounts of foods is you'll have a reward reaction and if you're depressed it becomes like an antidepressant in the beginning Um, If you're nervous, it'll become a sedative, you know, in a sense. The problem is you develop tolerance and you need more to get the same effect. Mm -hmm. And then in the end, what's happening is you're doing it because you're not going to feel better. But without doing it, you'll go through withdrawal. So you're boxed in a corner where you have to do it in order to avoid feeling worse. Right. And that happens across the board with any addiction. So that's the neurochemistry of it. 
The hypothalamus is nothing more than a thermostat in a small part of the brain that's about the size of a quarter. And like a thermostat, it can go up or down in terms of your metabolism, but it also controls hormones and directs uh, ghrelin in your stomach and leptin you know, in your fat tissue and all these hormones um, to tell or signal you when you are hungry or when to eat, what to eat, and when to stop eating. The problem is that the thermostat gets broken when you've abused it as much. It's like playing with the thermostat at home. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you don't know which way is up and which way is down. So you're eating despite not being hungry, mm -hmm. or the leptin creates a resistance and your brakes don't work as to when to stop eating, or the ghrelin is misinterpreted and it's really anxiety, it's not hunger and you eat out of appetite, not out of physical need. So that whole orchestra works together. And when it's dysfunctional, you cannot depend on internal cues or intuitive sense of when to eat. So true. I have noticed that if I'm in that, my blood sugar, it's like a roller coaster. Right. I have, I'll have panic attacks. And it's like, yeah. it's crazy how much if you're choosing that food, how it can just set your blood sugar on a roller coaster. Yeah, there's a whole, like I said, a whole orchestra. So it's not as important to understand it by connecting the dots and, you know, being, you know, uh, a neuroendocrinologist, you know, and all of that, you'll think yourself down a rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, the issue is to just know this stuff isn't good for you. Mm -hmm. And that when you, when, you know, if I take a drink, my reaction to that is different than my, you know, non-alcoholic, if you will, peers. So you, until you accept that you're physically and emotionally and spiritually different in some respects than someone who doesn't have that nature of the person or doesn't have that particular, you know, uh, addiction or, or, or chemistry, you know, you're, you're going to be chasing your tail. Yeah. And that brings me to the genetics piece. So, um, you know, I have addiction all over, you know, in my, in my family and thank God I also have recovery, but um, I don't, are you the one that told me this, that genetic loads the gun environment pulls the trigger? Yeah, I, I, it's not an original expression, yeah, but that's that. true. It's a, per, there's a perfect storm that exists and the perfect storm that, that's needed. It's like, you know, oxygen and, and, and hydrogen when you get two molecules of hydrogen and one, you know, or, or, you know, of oxygen, you make water, but separate, they're completely different things. Well, nature, the person, nature, the substance are two of the elements. Uh, the, 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 th the third is the environment or the setting of the circumstance. So, you know, if I inherited a propensity towards addiction, uh, let's say one or both of my parents um, uh, had an alcohol use disorder or alcoholism, it doesn't mean I'm going to become an alcoholic. It does mean I have a vulnerability to that, that I inherited. However, um, it, you know, if I'm in a circumstance where I, where I'm drinking, uh, binge drinking, let's say in college and whatnot, um, that may, that may set the stage in an environmental sense and now it's biological and it's 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 environmental you know and then the nature of the person not the substance uh, and all three combined to a perfect storm you know I have the seeds of alcoholism um, if I'm you know dealing with uh, an eating disorder uh, and a subset of that being food addiction or compulsive eating overeating or binge eating or some variant of all that overconsumption um, what'll end up what'll end up happening is that may lie dormant until a circumstance, stress, a divorce, um, or maybe the family moving it at a young age, or adolescence, or onset of menses, or some sentinel event or milestone, excuse the pun, and and now the circumstance or the setting um, and the nature of the person, and now the nature of the substance, the food takes on a new meaning. Right. So sometimes people will self-medicate with that substance, mm -hmm. but if they don't need the medication at a given point, it'll, it'll lie dormant. Yep. Yep. And so they may, ne it, ne it may never happen because they, 
Yeah, yeah. My daughter is a good a good example of that because um, uh, you know she's in her thirties. But the the truth of the matter is, yeah, she's had stressors in her life and she's had the right circumstances, but wasn't engaging in the particular behavior at that point in time. Got it. So so you know the timing and and the circumstance. So you have two things that cock the gun. Yep. The, the third that didn't pull the trigger in your analogy. So, you know, again, you can go down a rabbit hole trying to predict all of this. Yeah. The, 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 the bottom takeaway is if your parents had an issue with obesity, then de facto, there's a higher probability they had um, a food addiction issue, not necessarily, but a higher probability. And, you know, you need to be careful. You know, and likewise, if one or both parents had a drinking problem or a drug problem, you need to be careful. Mm -hmm. If they had a history of depression, you need to be, you know, careful and so on and so forth. So then that's where, um, like, if you, like, when I came to treatment and you guys took away all those th things I was escaping from, that's when it's like the trauma that I had as a child, it's just, it was there to be, start beginning revealed was my parents divorce and it's not like that was the th one thing but it was like was that the event I guess that kind of tripped because that's when I started to have that relationship with food and diet and all right. of that just went together that was the onset yeah so right so that was that was the the trigger if you will okay. um the problem is that trauma doesn't have a language in the forefront of the brain so there's the prefrontal cortex where our language is, or I call it the Mr. Spock area of the brain. It knows total logic, but no emotion. Wow. Um, the amygdala is the back part of all of this. It's the reptile brain. It only knows two things. It knows how to go towards pleasure or get the hell out of Dodge when there's pain. Mm -hmm. And and so what ends up happening is you 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 step on a landmine. Your parents get divorced. Maybe you're ten. Maybe you're twenty. Maybe you're sixty. I don't know. Um, and and yeah, it's painful. But unbeknownst to you, you find even though you're not aware of it, you're in less pain when you overeat, or you're in less pain when you're drinking, or you're in less pain when you're acting out in a relationship, or you're in less pain when you divert your, your emotions uh, uh, and detract yourself with work and so on. Mm -hmm. But what happens is the prefrontal cortex forgets this. Mm -hmm. And so whenever you're triggered um, uh, and you won't realize what's triggering you, you'll just start to overeat. And then the overeating takes on a life of its own. Mm -hmm. Now you're not just overeating because you're upset, you're overeating you know, for any reason. Yep. So it becomes its own illness. Although it started as a symptom, now it's its own illness, just like the cancer migrated from the lung um, to the bone. And so now you have to deal with the illness. So you stop overeating. But if you don't deal with the trauma, maybe you'll go a month, maybe you'll go a week, maybe you'll go a year. You get into a relationship, you get into an argument with your significant other you're off to the refrigerator. Why? Because your amygdala says only whatever. And then it goes to the food um, because that's the default to cope with that. But you're not conscious of that unless you've done the work to undo the trauma so that you bring it frontal and then you learn to identify it and, and, and see it for what it is so you don't have to self-medicate. That's an oversimplistic explanation of trauma. There are many ways to get there, but you're not gonna get there through talk and intellect. Yes, so that makes so much sense. But do you, do you think that's why um, some, it's like, cause when you talk about trauma, it's like people, um, it's like they don't, I know like they don't realize like, oh, that was actually like people think, oh, it's, I'm not unique. It happened to tons of other people. Right. And they kind of just brush it off. So right. is that maybe that's because they're still respond like because I always see it as, you know, until you address that root event, you're constantly responding the same way out of that original, you know, you're reacting. Or 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 um you develop other means of self-medicating that are that are harm reduction or or less uh, with less consequences. Mm -hmm. So let's say, I, I'm, I'll be real quick about this. Let's say I had a trauma like yours, parents mm -hmm. divorced at 10. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, I developed um, a, a, a food addiction or compulsive overeating. Um, I get to high school and I get a crush on somebody. We won't go into that. Um, and, and, and so I stop using food or abusing food, but I start like everybody, you know, smoking some marijuana and maybe I, I take a pill or two or whatever. And so, you know, um, not that one's, you know, less destructive than another, but I start a different form of self-medicating. Then I run into a problem with that. And then, you know, I'm doing something else and then I'm doing something else. And it's like a triangle that goes down and the further down the triangle, maybe the less harmful. And maybe I'm using a 12 step program. I see this all the time as, as someone who participates in it. You know, you put down one addiction, the next one takes center stage. Mm -hmm. And usually it's under the umbrella of codependency or relationships. Yeah. Um, um, so what ends up happening, it could be cigarette smoking, it could be work, it could be um, what they call codependency, um, it could be a relationship issue, but untreated, you just keep switching chairs on the Titanic. It's just that the ship is going down slower. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean you can't stop uh, using alcohol or drugs or food, it just means that in order to uh, resolve the nature of the person being an addict and all the different things that come with it, you do have to look for root cause. Yeah. But you don't have to solve the trauma, yeah. so to speak, in order to stop drinking. That would be a mistake. That is a very good point. Um, so actually, Talk since I know, I've read probably six books on codependency, but um, maybe uh, and I still have my old ripped up Melody Beatty language of right. Let Me Go devotional. But yeah, maybe don't we all? yeah, right. Maybe expand on the codependency um, where some people yeah, it, codependency is one of those terms that has a lot of meaning. Yes. It's like you know it, it gets very confusing. It simply means you know some kind of dependence on on people usually outside of yourself, not a higher power, but people other than yourself for either validation mm -hmm. or having um, more uh, control or influence over how you feel about yourself or your emotional temperature than you would like mm -hmm. or realize. So um, I'll give you an example. You know, it, it's, it, I just can't explain it academically, but I have a group of guys, um, we meet at my house, Mac, we met last night, every Wednesday night, it's about seven guys, and we read from a textbook or a book called The Courage to Change, mm. and, you know, it's one of many books about relationships and codependency and, and just kind of self-help and whatnot, but it's not written in a language that's, um, that's psychiatric nomenclature or whatever, it just, it's very um, uh, uh, based on, on, on good experiences from people. Okay. Codependency is, is our getting comfortable when we put down all the forms of self-medication. Codependency is usually the umbrella under which we are uncomfortable in our own skin and in our own skins. So in order for us to heal, and, and now that we're not using the symptom we're, we're, we're treating the disease with, like alcohol or food or whatever, now we're getting into um, how we think and perceive other people or become dependent mm -hmm. on other people telling us whether we're good, bad, worthy, uh, ugly, attractive, um, competent, incompetent, etc. Mm -hmm. Almost all people, I don't think people with addictions have a monopoly on this, have some sense or paradox between uh, being either better than or less than. Mm -hmm. or in, in, the, in the language of recovery speak, egomaniacs with inferiority yeah, complexes. Like, yep. <laughs> so, so anyway, so this group of guys have gotten to a point where we're all just being ourselves. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what we have, what we do for a living, where we went to school, any of that stuff. But when you read something or you talk about something, what we're really discussing are different elements in our relationships with either wives, past, present, or future, friends, employers, with each other, et cetera. And we're getting honest feedback from each other, uh, which allows us 
to see ourselves through our own eyes and be less dependent in the end on trying to see ourselves on what we either want or think other people are seeing us as. That's awesome. The, the, the symptom relief from that is not feeling socially anxious mm-hmm. and, and feeling as good as rather than better or less than. Mm-hmm. In spirituality terms, I define it as humility. Mm-hmm. It means that you and I aren't different. Right. We're packaged differently. But, you know, if you really look at spirituality as I experience it, it's really the idea that that we're all basically the same and we all basically want the same things. It's just that some of us have learned different ways in which to either manipulate or get that. Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, codependency means that um, that more of me is defined by me than by you. That makes sense. And life is really all about relationships, but we don't know that when we're knee deep in our addictions because our addiction is our best friend and it totally, what is it? The enemy wants to get you alone and kill you. And you know, that that is why the support element of recovery is so important. Well, isolation is the key mark of, of, of any addiction. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and look, there are three stages, right? And the first stage, the stuff works, alcohol, food, and whatnot. You feel better. There aren't that many consequences. Hey, I, I found Burger King. You can have your way. And, you know, and, and anyway, second, second stage, it's not working as well, but you're living in the illusion that you can get back to the first stage. Mm-hmm. But it's still worth doing. Mm-hmm. The last stage is terrible because it's not working at all, but it's staving off the consequences of not doing it. Yeah. So that's, that's a horrible place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's usually where isolation takes place because you don't want people to interrupt your drinking. Mm-hmm. So you drink alone, even though you've been out socially or have drinks before you go out. But usually you end up drinking alone. Mm-hmm. You end up eating alone. There isn't a lot of places where you can socially binge unless it's a buffet and then you have to kind of hide it mm-hmm. um, or, you know, or purge or et cetera. And we can go on and on, you know, when you're gambling, you're not going, you know, and you're gambling, you know, milk money for your family or whatever, you know, it's isolating. Yeah. What I found in recovery is you've reversed those chapters. You start getting involved in recovery. And in the first stage, you're feeling better. And there's this honeymoon phase. And, you know, um, uh, it's, it's, it's nice because you feel such a relief from uh, from the consequences, immediate consequences of overeating, uh, purging and whatnot. But the middle stage, it loses some of its luster and now you're starting to feel feelings. Mm. So the good news is you get to feel your feelings. The bad news is you get to feel your feelings. Yep. Third stage, you get to a point where you want to get, and that is you feel better going to meetings and doing recovery and doing steps or doing the deal or doing, you know, a healthy life. Um, and it feels much better than not doing it. And when you don't do it, you don't feel well. And when you are doing recovery, you you feel better. Mm-hmm. But the it's anti-isolation. What's really happening um, is that there's more and more people of like mind that are that are the herd is around the waterhole. Mm-hmm. And what I found over time is that we're very much like zebras in recovery um the zebras that live the longest uh, when they do studies this is a fact are the ones that stay in the middle of the herd they don't gravitate to the outskirts of the herd Mm -hmm. because the ones that get picked off by the lions which is the addiction Mm -hmm. um uh, are the ones that are on the periphery of the of the of the herd the ones that stay in the center live the longest and that's very true in you know in recovery whether your recovery is in a church it's in an aa room an oa room or or you know wherever that happens to be of like-minded people who are in the same struggle you are yep and you need to stay in the middle of that herd and and drink from the water hole and don't venture out because you'll definitely get picked off yeah that someone used to say to me stick with the winners stay away from the bottom feeders yeah all the same principle yep yep but you got to get comfortable around people and to get comfortable and feel as good as 
you need to do the work. Yes. You, yeah. It's uh, not a it's not a quick fix or an automatic. Um, and that that brings up one more question is what um, do you think? And I thought of this with COVID. Do you think that the ad addictions have just exploded out of the isolation with COVID? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have a statistic. My guess, my guess is that Zoom has helped more than it's hindered. Oh, good. You know, as, as a band-aid to all of that. And that the silver lining in that is that it will probably stay, but not as a substitute for, for interaction and, you know, in, in uh, group therapies and meetings and all of that good stuff, but as an alternative and an add-on for people. That said, um, I think when people isolate the, and they have the nature of the person having addictive tendencies, they're more prone uh, to overindulging in, you know, whatever fixes their loneliness, yeah. which is painful. Mm -hmm. So again, we're back to isolation. But if they're interacting, you know, um, it may be a salve uh, to ease uh, that discomfort. Um, uh, but you know, yeah, it, you know, if, you, if I were in China and I were forced to be, oh. you know, in, in an apartment and all that, um, I'd be doing more than, you know, banging on pots and pans, I'd be out of my mind. Yep. So, you know, human beings um, are, are meant to be around other human beings, mm -hmm. despite there's sometimes discomfort and ill feelings about that. It's, it's a basic human need. That's why it's cruel and unusual punishment to take a prisoner and isolate them. Mm. So yeah. as much as you want to be by yourself at times, trust me, um, there's a difference between, um, uh, you know, solitude and loneliness. Oh, so, I, um, I can just feel the me alone before recovery and me alone after or so it's. Yeah, sure. It's yeah, so and it's one of those things you may not realize because, um, again, that amygdala part of your brain wants you to move away from pain. So you might isolate, but then, you know, uh, what ends up happening is it tends to cause more pain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. I, I'm grateful that now if I'm, I know that I, I enjoy being by myself, which was so hard to do without eating or drinking before because I was so uncomfortable in my skin, you know. Right. So, um, sure. so I think, I think all of these things are kind of evidence of why just willpower isn't enough and why so many of us have needed treatment. Um, yeah. I don't know if you want to say anything else about willpower. Yeah. Well, what I, the only thing I would say, you know, is again, it's a language, um, issue sometimes to me, it's not about a discipline. The discipline is doing the things that you don't have to rely on willpower or your ego or yourself um, to, uh, to deny yourself a substance. It's not about that. It's about no longer wanting it or needing it. There's a difference between um, I like something and I need something. Mm -hmm. um, people that don't have a drinking problem, they may like a martini or, or whatever, or a glass of wine, mm -hmm. but we think we may like it. But if you have an addiction, it's that you need it. So yep. it's, it's a little bit um, a different than that. Um, but what I would say is that the solution that seems to work is not, you know, not in the, only the medical or biological side and not only the psychiatric or emotional side, although those are important. I, I go back to this third leg of the stool and that is you're much better off relying on some source of energy, power or belief in something other than yourself. Mm -hmm. And when a group of people get together, the aggregate of those people, like a prayer circle or an AA meeting or whatnot, that's a very powerful source that you're not going to be able to measure with your five senses. Right. So, so it's important, you know, that you avail yourself of, of, of plugging into a power source that's not just between your ears. Love that. So essentially, you're kind of saying spirituality is is the is kind of the essential piece of lasting, right? And that you have to define what that is for you, mm -hmm. and and that you know that there's there's enough tolerance for most people mm -hmm. that will allow you to define that. 
it doesn't mean it's devoid of, of, of some religious rituals or, or beliefs. It can be inclusive of that or exclusive of that. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, what I would say about spirituality is no one is necessarily dictating yeah. what the rules of that are for you or what that should be. So it leaves you with the challenge of, of, of evolving that for yourself. And so it's necessarily ambiguous because no one's defining it for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. Yeah, I often say I would not have been able to do it if, if it was a program of religion. I needed, to, I needed the, to be able to return to that relationship. Well, because most people grew up, regardless of their religious affiliation as a child, with, with fixed notions and experiences in, you know, in what they experience as religious dogma. Mm -hmm. So yeah. when people first get into a 12-step program or, you know, another recovery program or what have you, they, they learn, again, this is an original, that religion is for people that don't want to go to hell and spirituality is for people that have been there. Mm -hmm. um, now, there are a lot of people that develop their flavor of spirituality and then reconnect with their church of their childhood, but now reconnect with it in a completely different way where the rituals have meaning and, 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 and the symbols, if you will, and the texts that they read have a completely different uh, take on it. So, you know, the religion of your childhood is not the religion of your recovery. Nope, absolutely not. And that's a whole other topic that we could do another time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. There is no, there is no one way or the highway, mm -hmm. you know, so, um, but you could tell one thing about, about everybody that has connected, you know, to that power and that's that they're usually good people. Yeah. Yeah. So simple, simple but true. Yeah. All right. Well, wow. We covered a lot. So thank you so much. Sure, sure, um, sure doing and, it. Uh, I, uh, I'll wrap up now and I'll see you guys all next week. All right, well, you take care of yourself and I'll get this to you when it's done. Okay, great. All right. Bye. Thanks, Marty. Bye.